The presence of private security companies, or PSCs, in conditions of armed conflict continues to be an item of concern to the international community. PSCs seem to blur the distinction between combatants and civilians. They use force, but they're not members of the armed forces. To clarify this murky condition, PSCs should operate under specific rules for the use of force appropriate to their tasks and restrictions under international and local national law. PSC Rules for the Use of Force is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to Episode 80 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College and the Naval War College. Think of these podcasts as a kind of war college for everyone, not as in-depth as our national defense universities, but focused on what I think every citizen should understand about war, peace, and the gray area in between. Now, if you think these podcasts are worthwhile, please hit like and subscribe or follow, and maybe leave a comment. These podcasts are not monetized or subsidized in any way, nor do they represent anyone's opinion but my own. From January 2006 through September 2008, 18 governments worked under the auspices of the International Committee of the Red Cross and the Swiss government to produce the Montreux Document on Pertinent International Legal Obligations and Good Practices for States Related to Operations of Private Military and Security Companies During Armed Conflict. <sighs> Europeans love long titles. I was fortunate to be on the U.S. negotiating team for that work, which I described in Episode 5. The Montreux Document includes recommendations that governments require rules for the use of force for private military and security companies. Now, that said, the only specific elements that Montrose cites in such rules are using force only in self-defense and the defense of third persons and immediate reporting to and cooperating with appropriate authorities. Other relevant passages imply that rules for the use of force should be more extensive than that, taking into account task and context-specific factors. Like RUF for the Armed Forces, rules for the use of force for private security companies are directives issued by competent authorities describing when and how force may be used in self-defense, the defense of others, and to protect property. They are, therefore, strictly defensive in nature and do not authorize a PSE to conduct offensive action. An example might be search and seizure operations, which is properly a police function. These rules should also explicitly prohibit combat, sometimes called direct participation in hostilities. This prohibition can be ill understood when PSEs are performing their tasks in a region of armed conflict. This makes specific and rigorously enforced rules even more important. Here's an example of what might be part of an RUF for a PSC under a U.S. Defense Department contract. The use of deadly force is permitted for individual self-defense and the defense of others when there is a reasonable belief of imminent risk of death or serious bodily harm. Another might be, less than deadly force may be used to prevent the loss or destruction of DOD property. Since rules for the use of force are only issued by competent legal authority, RUF may have the force of law and provide some measure of immunity for PSEs operating under and in conformance with those rules. On the other hand, rules for the use of force may only be legally enforceable when they are issued by a competent legal authority. Although 59 governments, the European Union, NATO, and the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe currently support the Montreux document, not all of them have implemented its recommendations and good practices, and this includes providing RUF. 
I think that the United States is noteworthy for including RUF in all of its contracts for PSC services. These rules are similar to those I described in the previous podcast, episode 79. One of those sources for RUF, DODD 5210.56, specifically addresses its use for PSC RUF, stating, It establishes policy and standards and assigns responsibilities for contractor personnel required to carry a firearm in accordance with applicable DOD contracts. And in the example rules I mentioned just a minute ago, the first is from an actual contract for PSC services in Afghanistan, and the second is from DODD 5210.56. As I said, a formal RUF is standard in U.S. Defense Department contracts for PSC services. Now, this could also happen when contracting directly with other governments. In most cases, however, despite the requirement in the Montreal document, PSCs may be expected to develop their own use of force procedures for their employees. These may then be approved by a government agency, as happens in U.S. State Department contracts, or perhaps by a relevant law enforcement agency. Despite that recognition or approval, these company-developed procedures may have no authority beyond the company itself, and the company and its employees will bear the full responsibility for any use of force. In this case, instead of using rules for the use of force, since these really aren't rules, they would be more appropriate to call them use of force procedures or use of force policy. The general procedure for developing either RUF or use of force procedures for PSCs follows the process for the armed forces, beginning with the overarching principles of using force only in self-defense and the defense of third persons or property. The overarching principles must also state, as it does for armed forces RUF, that any use of force must be necessary to protect persons and property and that the amount of force must be reasonable in intensity, duration, and magnitude. For civilian RUF, and PSCs are civilians, that is what is meant by the term proportionate. Also similar to armed forces RUF, PSC RUF procedures should include escalation of force measures. In the RUF issued by the Defense Department, escalation measures are clearly spelled out and, in my own experience, DOD investigations carefully examine whether those measures were followed. When looking at the specific rules to include supporting those overarching principles, the San Ramo Handbook on Rules of Engagement and the Newport Rules of Engagement Handbook can be used just as they can be for military RUF. However, a similar handbook exists for the specific purpose of developing use of force procedures for private security companies. This is published by the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime and is called the Handbook on the Use of Force by Private Security Companies. Like the ROE handbooks, it consists of overarching guiding principles and is followed by a menu of rules appropriate to the operational context, such as land-based or maritime-specific PSC duties, and are adaptable to applicable law. The reason it's so similar is that the drafters were some of the same people that worked on the other two documents. And like the Newport ROE handbook, I'm listed as a contributor and reviewer of this work. Of course, DOD RUF will follow DODD 5210.56, which I mentioned earlier. It's critically important to remember that, with rare exception, PSE personnel are civilians and have no official capacity to use force as members of the armed forces or police. Therefore, any use of force will be subject to applicable national law for civilians. Given this, what good does a use of force policy do? 
One possible consideration is that use of force consistent with a use of force policy approved by a government agency or relevant police authority could be used as evidence in establishing whether use of force was justified in a particular incident. Similarly, if a PSC, or the organization that hired the PSC, can show that its use of force policy was developed using a United Nations approved process specific to PSCs, and that policy was followed in execution, well, then this could be used as evidence of following internationally agreed procedures, potentially mitigating liability. Maybe. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not offering legal advice. So don't take my word for any of that. What you can take my word on is that PSCs need to be very careful when developing use of force policy and organizations hiring them need to pay close attention. With all of that said, you might ask about PSCs or rather so-called private military and security companies that do or at least appear to directly participate in hostilities or conduct combat operations. Shouldn't they be using ROE instead of RUF? Well, there's a two-part answer to this question. First, in some rare cases, these companies are incorporated into the armed forces of a state. Examples include Executive Outcomes, Sandline, and STTEP in Africa. In this case, as stated by the Montreux document, these persons are no longer considered civilians but members of the armed forces. Therefore, these persons have combatant privileges and should follow ROE. The second part is that if they have no such formal incorporation and they directly participate in hostilities, then they can be charged under applicable civilian law for any death, destruction, injury, or violation of human rights or local national law resulting from their actions. Note that such participation in hostilities is not, however, a violation of the law of war. Any RUF that goes beyond the defense of persons or property against unlawful attack should not be considered a valid RUF or use of force policy, and it should not be approved. So, these last four episodes give you a very brief introduction to the rules for using force in combat and other similar non-combat situations. My intent is not to make you experts on this. I know I'm not an expert, although I've been privileged to work with experts, lectured on the subject, and participated in developing RUF and the handbooks I mentioned. My hope for you from this is that when someone claims that military forces or PSCs are out of control or committing war crimes, you'll have a better appreciation for the controls that are available and you'll be able to question whether such claims have merit or are just inflammatory statements intended to get an emotional response. As always, if you think that this episode met its intent, or if you got anything out of it, please hit like, follow, or subscribe. And join me next time on the ancient art of modern warfare.